Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome back. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Jeffrey Gannon, Focus yes. Compounding. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hopefully, you guys, if you're watching this video... We, we haven't changed clothing much, right, for the past three videos. They've discovered that we record more than one at a we time. We record yeah. more than one at a time. That is correct. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I was like, should we, like, bring different shirts to change? But no, we're, we're just we're just going to roll with it. So okay. um, if you are noticing that, it's because we, we're normally going to record either three or four uh, every time that we meet up. So thank you so much, though, for tuning in with us, whether you are on the podcast or the YouTube side. Greatly appreciate it. Today we're going to be talking about something we've never talked about. On the okay. show. Do you see that person that's behind me on my window? Charlie. That picture? Yes, I do see Charlie. What's Munger. his name? Charlie Munger. That's right. Charlie Munger. So we're going to be talking about the Perry Mutual system. Okay. And how he always talks about horse betting mm-hmm. and how he relates that to investing. Right. Um, so Charlie has, has said that people should think about the stock market in like with the peer and mutual system, right? right. And how, um, and he kind of links it to horse betting, how whenever people go and bet on horses, they just kind of go to the track, they're having fun, they just bet whatever, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, maybe whatever horse has the best odds. Right. When he says the way that people should bet is should study the horse, study the jockey, mm-hmm. wait for the odds to present a favorable opportunity, right. and then you bet. Yeah. Right. And I've also heard other um, stories about Charlie and other metaphors on how he thinks about things. It's like if he were to go to the grocery store and he liked an item, mm-hmm. he would go there every single day, know the item, not buy it until it was on sale. Right. Even if he had to go 200 days in a row and then finally when it's on sale, he'd be like, okay, now it's a good buy. I'm going to yeah. buy it. But he always talks about the metaphor, if you will, when it comes to horse betting. Mm-hmm. So how do you typically think about that, I guess, when it relates to investing? And when you think about handicapping a stock, because that's a term that everyone uses. I don't know if a lot of people know what it actually means. Okay. So what do you think about handicapping a stock and what it means, I guess? Sure. So the reason why you would think about it in terms of uh, like a horse race, Mm -hmm. instead of betting on a horse race, instead of any other form of gambling, is that you're not betting against the house on a horse race. So a horse race is similar to if a casino was hosting a poker game, you're playing against other players, uh, which is different than, say, blackjack, which might have pretty good odds, uh, pretty close to even odds for someone who knows how to uh, play the game well, um, using the best strategy that they could against the house, but they're still betting against the house uh, instead of playing against other players. Now, actually, betting horse races tends not to be a good idea because of how big the take uh, there's a takeout that they um, uh, the the track takes, which is sometimes very high. Um, it's often probably fifteen to twenty percent or something, I would guess. So it doesn't matter that you might be much better than other players. But in the stock market, people who are even worse than the other people that they're buying and selling from uh, are going to have a slightly positive return. So it's it's like a horse race uh, betting at, at the track where, uh, in fact, you're getting a benefit instead of having it being taken out uh, by the track. You're basically getting money even if you're not as good as other uh, players there. So the way to think about it is 
it's not just deciding which horse is most likely to win, but what the odds are on that yeah. and comparing the two. Mm-hmm. So there's two sorts of ways that people would like look at a horse race um, that I think he would talk about, which is either you can start by trying to figure out uh, is there mispriced odds here, or you can start by saying what are the horses that have a realistic chance of winning this race, yeah. and then look for the one that you think has decent odds. Uh, and we tend to do this that second one. So uh, the first thing we do, although we have a – uh, an approach that we only look at overlooked stocks. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then once we do that, where we only look at overlooked stocks, what we tend to do is we only look for the businesses that we really like. And then we wait till they're at a low enough price. Yeah. We really don't buy things that are just really cheap. Um, and actually I was talking to someone recently that way where he was saying, so, um, you know, would you buy this thing that's like a, a value stock, but isn't a very good business or something. And it's like an asset, um, type, uh, play. And I said, well, no, if I could find a business I liked at a low enough price, but if I couldn't, then I would buy this. Yeah. So I will buy something that the odds seem off on, uh, if I can't find, uh, a, you know, something that's using that metaphor a realistic favorite um at good odds but generally what you're doing is you're looking we're just looking at things that we think are some of the best horses in the race and then we're only betting when we think that the odds are good enough we're not really looking at things that we think um as many value investors are that the odds are just so mispriced but it's fundamentally not a great business yeah Yeah. and the way you do that is and we've talked about it obviously is building up a batting order of a bunch of companies Mm -hmm. that you like and just wait for the market to come to you yeah so with handicapping um basically what you're doing is there's two ways of looking at it one is that you could say um given these odds basically what do i uh what is that implying about the probability that this horse will win basically Mm -hmm. and that's in fact the kind of approach that we use because we're not uh we're often looking at and saying how cheap is this what does that really imply about the uh future so we're reversing it it's not like we're doing a dcf a discounted cash flow uh, analysis where we're trying to figure out what a business is worth instead we're saying let's take the stock price and ask what is that uh what is for, to have that price, what is that the market assuming about what the future would be? Yeah. So, so it's like I, a reverse DCF. Right. Yeah. So like I talked about um, Farmer Mac before where um, to be priced at like a P of eight or something, that would assume that the company doesn't grow at all for the next 10 years and then reaches a P of 15. Uh, given the dividend yield and stuff, that would still match or beat the market Mm -hmm. so in a sense the market is saying this company's not going to grow at all yeah uh or even worse than that it's saying that even if this company could not grow at all and would still match or beat the market so it seems very very low right so that's giving you an idea there about how negative um the market is on it and how easy it would be to overcome that mm-hmm. um whereas you take a different case because you're almost thinking about it where it's like heads you make money tails you could still potentially make money right yeah yeah so i was talking to someone recently about a closed-end fund um which i don't think is a very good business or something but you could tell that the discount is so big it's a, it was at the time i was looking at it, it was probably a slightly bigger than 50% discount. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for every dollar of stocks that it had, and most of its stocks were publicly traded companies and things that have daily quotes on them, um, it, it was for every dollar that it had in terms of net asset value, uh, the market price on it was about 50 cents. So one way to think about that is, let's say the stock market normally returns about 9% a year. Yeah. So if you think about it that way, you can do the math where you say, so the market is basically saying this company will underperform the market by like 3% a year. For the next 20 years, 
and during which time the company will not liquidate. So if you want to be right that buying the stock market, buying an S&P 500 index or something, is mm-hmm. going to beat this stock for the next 20 years, you have to assume two things. One, the stock can't um, underperform by less than 3% a year. And two, the stock must not liquidate in the next 20 years. If either of those things are not true, we know the stock will outperform. Because a 50 cent um, stock growing at like say one point, uh, growing at like say 6% a year, uh, if you draw that out, if you take that and try to graph that out, what sure. you'll see is that will outperform the market if the um, percentage increase is compounding at more than 6% a year, or if at any point it jumps from being a $0.50 cent dollar to a full dollar because yeah. it liquidates or something in the next 20 years. Yeah. So when you put it that starkly to someone that it's not just, oh, I don't like this business or something, I, d- I kind of don't want it, you have to say, well, at what price would you like it? Because there is a price for a business if it's not risky, if it's not risking going to zero and a closed-end fund is not going to go to zero. Um, you know, how big should the discount be? Sure. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't like the management, I don't like whatever. Okay. But if it's a $0.25 cent dollar, then what? You know? And and the same thing's true with net nets. I do that all the time with net nets where I look at them and say, okay, let's say the company doesn't grow or whatever. Nonetheless, if it, you know, reaches net current asset value at some point, you can calculate how many years people think it's going to be before that happens. And what you find with attractive net nets is people are – they're probably not doing this calculation, but what they're doing is they're assuming that it will never liquidate or something, that nothing will ever happen to make it reach um, its fair value. And you see over and over again that companies do that. Mm-hmm. We can think of examples recently in the recent past. I know that a company called Paradise decided it was going to liquidate, uh, and that was a perennial net net. Did they actually liquidate? What, what did they do? Yeah, they it was like um – Candy fruit. I was going to say fruit, cherries or something, right? Yeah. 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 Basically, it makes the ingredients that are used in fruitcake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they did liquidate, yeah. They announced that they would, yeah. And they sold part of their business, and they're going through with liquidation, yeah. Wow. I remember we chatted about that company, like, mm-hmm. what, a year and a half, two years ago. And we also talked about Vulcan International, right? Yeah, yeah. And they also decided to liquidate. Oh, they did? The yeah. Dark Sock? Yeah. I didn't even know that they uh, they liquidated. Uh, well, they haven't gone through so it yet, but once you file the papers, they would have to do it. Uh, I don't remember if they're Delaware Corporation, but they have to do it within a few years. I, th- I think it's almost certain that they would do it within three yeah. years, and it would probably be quicker than that, but I don't see how they could take longer once they announce it. So well, if their board actually decides to liquidate, yeah, it'll happen within three years, definitely. So yeah. pretty much what you're doing, though, is you're looking at situations where it's like you take like a, a, a bear or like a bull case, a, a base case, and a bear case, right? And your bear case, you still want it to be where you could potentially make money. Those are the way that you're the way you're kind of thinking about it. Yeah, well, I look at what the price the market's saying. Yeah. I'm saying what – I'm reversing it if you want to use the Charlie Munger thing, invert, right? People are saying, well, how will this stock uh, – a lot of times people are saying, well, what will the stock return for me? Sure. I'm saying don't do that calculation right now. Yeah. Way. Instead, ask what has to happen for this stock to underperform the market, mm-hmm. right? Sure. That, you know, flip it around that way. Yeah. And when you see sometimes – like, for instance, a stock that's trading at 50 cents and has assets, assets worth a dollar – Okay, it's possible it could underperform. That closed-end fund could underperform the market, mm-hmm. but it's so difficult for it to underperform the market. Now, if there's fraud and stuff, sure. If they do yeah. a completely incompetent thing, sure. They're not even really borrowing money. So unless they start borrowing money, they're not going to zero. Yeah. Um, so what do they do? Well, they can have expenses and things that I was saying could be three percent. In that case, I just said assume three percent. You know. Now you can look and see there are closed-end funds which could have even higher fees if they have really small amounts of assets and things, but. Um, but this one, it would be hard to see how they could spend more than 3% of their assets all the time. Um, and then something might happen. You know, In that case, that company has bought back stock before, which would cause mm-hmm. the gap to close sure. sooner. Um, but 
you know, it, so you you ask how long do you think it could be before this this could uh, have something happen? And what you're betting on that case, what people are doing by not buying that stock and buying the S&P instead. So every time you buy an S&P index, like a Vanguard or something, yeah. instead of buying that closed-end fund, you're making this bet, which is very unlikely to be right. So your bet is I'm going to be better off in this S&P 500 index fund than in this closed-end fund. I'm paying a dollar for the index. I could be paying 50 cents for whatever bucket this company has. Mm-hmm. I think that that basket is so bad that I want to get half as much value for my money buying the index, and that's going to pay off over time. Mm-hmm. Well, it could, but that that close-in fund has to be so badly run for so long without ever buying back stock, without ever liquidating. It's just unlikely. And people make that bet all the time because they don't see a way for that company to – uh, get those kinds of returns in a short period of time. But that's like net net investing. You do that all the time. I was going to say, so take us maybe through um, like an example, like net nets, mm-hmm. the Japanese net nets. Yeah. How did you think about like that I calculate and the, how and the long probability it, and everything? I calculate know. how long you can afford to hold the stock. Okay. That's always how I do it for a net net. So, so explain on that. Okay. <laughs> what do you mean? Like before so, the company's insolvent or before what? No, no, no. The company's not insolvent. All the net nets I bought are profitable. Yeah. I've never bought an unprofitable They had no debt, right? Right. Yeah. So I've never bought an unprofitable net net. But when you say um, how long you can hold it, like what are you talking about? Like for an adequate return? Yeah. Okay. So let's say net current asset value compounds at 5% a year. Yeah. Let's say the stock market compounds at 10% a year. Yeah. Draw that out. 5% a year. And I'm getting $2 in assets, $2 in net current assets sure. for every $1 I spend. Yes. So let's take $2 get out a calculator, multiply by 1.05 to whatever power, uh-huh. to fi- the fifth power to the 10th to the 15th to draw my dots to calculate this out. And then let me take the S&P 500 and say I'm getting $1 value for my $1 today, mm-hmm. but I compound it, let's say, 10% a year. I don't think the S&P will do better than 10% a year. Yeah. So I draw that and say, well, where do they intersect? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. At, and I just gave you an example of the closing fund. Yeah. That's not – you need it to underperform, first of all. And then you need to say that that gap won't close for 20 years. Nothing could possibly happen in 20 years that that will happen. I mean, think about that for a second. For, to say that it won't happen in 20 years is the same as saying that there's, you know, like say a 50 – it's not exactly the same, but it's close enough for our purposes here – as <laughs> saying that there's only a 50% chance that something – that for each of the next 40 years, yeah. right, that this will happen. Because – I'm saying that you have to, to be sure of this. You'd have to be 100% certain that this would not happen in the next 20 years, sure. right? Mm-hmm. If you're wrong and there's like a 3% chance every year that this might happen, that's too high. Already, if there's a 3% chance it might liquidate every year, you've made the wrong bet. And it's very likely that you've made it. And in the case of that closing fund, I think it's almost certain that you, people are making the wrong bet by not buying the fund. But I understand why they do it for emotional reasons and stuff. Like every value investor has bought that fund. Okay. The fund, by the way, is Urbana. I was going to say, what, what, yeah, what, it's what company is it? It's Urbana. Um, and so uh, <laughs> all sorts of value investors bought it. Yeah. And then it didn't go up, and they sold it. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, it went up like 100% in one year or something, right? Mm-hmm. But because it doesn't do that steady thing. If the value gap had been closing at you know a couple, it outperformed the market by a couple. If the price to net asset value was closing by like 2% a year or something every year, yeah. they would have kept it. Right, but they didn't because sometimes the gap widened and all sorts of things. And closed-end funds, this Urbana is not technically a closed-end fund anymore. It changed so that it's not doesn't actually a closed-end fund, but for purposes of calculations about it, it works exactly the same way. Yeah, and it does have a bunch of reasons why it should be at a discount to the market, right? Like for it will underperform the market over time. Okay, but um, 
you have to underperform by a very big amount. And that's true for net nets. They often will underperform. Like there was another company I was looking at recently. It's on the watch list. It's on the, the 10 stocks on the watch list. So it's one of those 10 stocks. Mm-hmm. And it owns um, hotels in much of the world. So it owns hotels. It's because cash-generating assets are hotels in Vietnam. But it also has hotels in like the U.S., which are probably its biggest assets. It's listed in Hong Kong. And um, that company is probably, probably – the market price of the company is about mm, 20% to 25% of what the sum of the parts are. So it may greatly underperform. It doesn't pay a very big dividend. Uh, it's just a family that runs it and they may not be interested in ever liquidating or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you're getting $4, let's say, 4 or $5 of assets for uh, in terms of market value for every $1 you're spending. Sure. So doing the same calculation like the S&P 500, yeah. exactly how bad do the returns have to be? What if those hotels compound their value at 5% a year, yeah. um, both through the dividend that they have of 1% or 2% a year, plus just appreciation due to inflation and stuff? Let's say the price of hotels increases by 3% or 2% a year, whatever yeah. inflation is in these countries. Um, it would You'd have to bet on that price gap not closing for an incredibly long period of time to make that work. Now, that's not true if the company is not generating very good returns. But take the example of that company. That company, I think I calculated over the last 20 years or so, uh, 15 to 20 years, had compounded book value at like 7% a year. See, there shouldn't be much of a discount for a company that compounds say, why, book value. Why is it, uh, why is that's it a good question. such a discount? Is it there shouldn't be much. Because it's an overlooked stock? Yeah, it is overlooked. It's a liquid. It's in Hong Kong. How there big are is risks it? with it. Hmm. Not very big, but it's bigger than some stocks we own. Mm. So, but very illiquid. I mean, not very illiquid, but illiquid. Yeah. But um, but there's a tendency for Hong Kong uh, stocks not to care much about um, shareholder value, mm-hmm. right? So there's definitely, for instance, that company's barely ever used leverage, right? So it has used leverage in its U.S. businesses. When it bought uh, U.S. hotels, it would borrow like half the value of the hotel. But investors in hotels in the U.S. and Europe and stuff would normally buy really uh, borrow really big amounts for their hotels really leverage them up. The unleveraged returns in hotels are not very high, mm-hmm. right? They could be 5% and lower um, in like four-star hotels and stuff, which is what they own. Uh, but so there, that's your issue there, right? So it could earn very low uh, compounding going forward. But the other possibility is just that people think uh, it's too much, that it, the, it's just dead money. That's usually the answer that people like have a land bank type of thing or what? Well, no, it's not a land bank. I mean, it's but producing. I, mean, I know, I understand, but like dead money, how? They think the gap won't close. Same Got as it. Urbana. Got it. So Urbana owns stocks. Like, you know, it owns Bank of America or whatever, and yeah. that stock will go up or down. Mm-hmm. But they just figure, well, everyone will always um, have it trade at this big discount. A lot of people are afraid of a stock that trades at a big discount to net asset value sure. or to book value because yeah, yeah. they figure, why won't it always trade at that discount? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't. The, the reason something should trade at a discount or not to book value would depend on how productive it is versus those assets. So if the company is not going to compound its value over time, then that should happen. Yeah. Like it's really easy to have a big discount to book value that's justifiable if the company has a lot of risk or it might actually lose money mm-hmm. or it doesn't it, it'll compound it like one percent or two percent a year yeah. we find things in japan where the return equity is like two percent a year it's they're basically sitting on a lot of cash but when you have things that are are that are compounding five percent yeah. a year or higher the gap that you would have to have to explain that um i mean the the justification for a 
discount in price to earnings, price to book, whatever, between the market and a stock you're looking at depends on two things. It depends on the underperformance per year, how less efficient you are in the stock versus the market, Mm -hmm. and then the number of years that this underperformance will continue for. There are cases where I would say it's perfectly justified. I've seen things where value investors get excited about some life insurer uh, that's trading at 0.4 times book value. Right, but I've seen cases where I'd say, yeah, I'd value it zero point four times book value, because it's a life insurance um, business that is not particularly efficient or anything. It's a pretty high cost of funding. You know, it's actually worse because they're they basically have a combined ratio over hundred all the time, and then they invest in you know corporate bonds um, that have you know low returns, and mm-hmm. so their return on equity is four percent this year, and it'll probably be four percent in ten, twenty, thirty years, but. But some of these other things we're talking about, the return might be higher than 4% a year, and something could be done to liquidate it, which is unlikely to happen with a, an insurer because they have all these obligations that go really far out into the future. Even if you put in runoff, it would take a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, so taking your Hong Kong example, mm-hmm. if you were to, because remember, this was kind of all about like probabilities, handicapping yeah. a stock, what probabilities would you assign to like a company like that? Well, how, I would would, you, how would you think about it? I would it? do it the reverse way, which is what I said, you know. It, don't do it based on trying to figure out what the probabilities are. Mm-hmm. Ask what is the market implying about this. The market is saying this thing that's worth. That's, and then if you think the market's wrong, then it could be yeah. an interesting. Investment. Well, start yeah. plugging in numbers. Okay, so what do you think is? Do you think so? It pays a one percent dividend. Doesn't have an. I mean, think about it this way. Do you think that a hotel will earn less than a five percent return on its market value? Maybe. Can it earn less than a 4% return or 3% return? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. The cap rates on hotels are, are higher than it is on like apartment buildings say, or something. Yeah, I live in an apartment building that has a, high, a lower cap rate than these hotels. Yeah. So the owner's getting worse returns than that. So, okay, let's say, w- will the hotel's value increase each year at the rate of inflation? Probably. Okay. At least. Well, what if inflation is... So you're already at like 3% Should we assume right inflation is 2% a yeah, year? Yeah. They're paying the dividend out of the earnings that it has each year. That's 1% there. So 3%. Okay, yeah. so say it's 3%. Then you just ask how long. Okay, so it's, say it's a twenty. You're buying. You're paying twenty cents. Let's say it might be twenty five, but let's say it's twenty cents. Twenty cents for something that's worth a dollar. So you take a dollar mm-hmm. and you multiply it by one point zero three to whatever power. Let's test it for five years: ten, fifteen, twenty. Mm-hmm. See what that turns into versus my purchase price of twenty cents. Got it. Now I can tell you that twenty cents that turns into a dollar, even over a fairly long period of time, uh-huh. with no compounding will outperform the market. We know that. Over five years, you don't have to do the math. 20 cents that becomes a dollar over five years outperforms sure, the market. Yeah. The market can't turn 20 cents into a dollar in five years. No. Uh-huh. You know? It's not going to happen. So you over if this happens within five years that that gap closes, then you've made it. Now, the other thing you can do is you can look at what the um, uh, discount was in the past. So, for instance, I mentioned Urbana. There was a time when Urbana traded over uh, at a premium. So it trades at 50% discount, but in its very early days, it traded at a premium. What about the Hong Kong company? That's a good example. So it traded very close to book value right before the financial crisis. Got it. People were very excited about it had businesses in Macau and things like so that. So then do you like there. to see that probably more so? So well, it's, that's it's one, not like it's always traded at a discount? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that one, I think, has always traded at a discount. As far as I know, it's never been a premium. But um, so like, for instance, today, it's price to book. might It might be. Uh, 50% discount, right? And it was once at a dollar, you know, at a price to book of one. So let's say you just assumed, okay, the past is a perfect guide here. And I have 20 years of data on this company. Yeah. And it once traded at price to book of one for one year. 
well, I could just assume there's a 5% chance in any given year that it will trade at a price to book of one. Mm-hmm. I could also calculate what the median price to book in the past has been. Yeah. It's a way that you could do it. And you could look to buy it when it's at a discount that way. Um, you could do any of those sorts of approaches. But you can also say that doesn't necessarily make a big difference. But if you think that the return on equity is going to be a lot poorer going forward than it is mm-hmm. uh, been in the past, you know, and you'd have to look at that. Those sorts of things. Like, for instance, Urban, I think, was different in the past in a way that means it will never be at a premium again. I would say that's not going to happen. Um, this Hong Kong company, I think their Vietnam properties have much higher returns than anything they buy in the U.S. or something like that. Would you be nervous investing in something like that that had, like, properties in Vietnam or Hong Kong? Yeah. It has no properties in Hong because, Kong. Uh, but, because, like, for example, like, if it was, like, a United States company, you'd probably look up the land records and everything, correct? Yeah, and that's it, probably you. Probably I don't know if you can do that overseas, um, like in Vietnam. Yeah, I know the hotels that they have. <laughs> I talked to some people who've been there too. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but yeah, I mean the 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 hotels they have are, uh, well, there. Yeah, you mean that you could actually see the records yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That you could see the records. They val. I'm sure that every every write up I've seen values the Vietnam hotels too low, and the Macau ones. In so my how do you know that though? Because you can see, you can read their filings <laughs> and see how much they're generating in cash. Got it. Okay. Here's the thing: those Vietnam hotels have. So here's the. So deal. are you doing like a reverse? Like I don't. Are like are you talking about like the cap rate? Yes. That? Yes. Yeah. So you're like and just thinking. I guess in terms of what the free cash flows. Yes. yes. You can look and see that most of the cash flow the company's had over the years has been from the Vietnam properties. Uh-huh. Now people value the Vietnam properties very low, but here's the deal: the Vietnam properties had. Um, they call them like casinos or whatever. But what they are is electronic gaming rooms. They're slot machines. Mm-hmm. So they have permission to allow foreign passport holders in Vietnam to play the games there. And in reality, there's you can't generally in that city have slot machines. So what the company doesn't talk about this. They talk about it. I mean, they mention it a little bit. But mostly they talk about them as if they're just hotels. But I'm not sure those hotels really make much of any return. But they have these um, slot machines. And it's from those slot machines when everyone else is in all – not everyone, but most all the properties in, in um, that city in Vietnam are not allowed to have slot machines. So you sort of have a monopoly on slots, and, and that's why they have a good return in that. Are they going to get that in the future from other places? No. That was special treatment that they sure. got on that one uh-huh. deal. Yeah, no. In the U.S., they're getting much worse returns on that. They bought something in Manhattan that they'll get a very modest return. They bought something in San Francisco they'll get a very modest return. They paid very high um, prices for those. They bought one thing at right after the financial crisis, and they get a good return on that. But it, They I, did or not? They will. Oh, they will. I mean, they, they, I think they have since then, but just because they paid a really low price. Yeah, sure. But in normal times, you don't get very good returns on, on buying hotels that way. But you have to think about this. What is a, you know, think about what the yields are on 30-year U.S. Treasuries. Like nothing. Okay. Yeah. If someone was offering you a basket of U.S. Treasuries at uh, probably 75 or 80% discount mm-hmm. to what you could sell them for, people would buy them. Sure. But they yeah. would buy them because you can immediately liquidate yeah, them. That's why like they would so do it. it. Yeah. But you have to think that actually these properties will return more than those bonds. Mm-hmm. So the only reason why you're not saying I should buy this is because I can't liquidate it. I have to look at the market to give me my return. Sure. But if someone is going to make a decent return on this, okay, eventually either you're going to sell out. What's very possible is you will buy it today and you'll hold it for five years and it won't go up. Like I said, these value investors had the experience with Urbana. And then you'll sell to someone else 
But that person will get the big return. Yeah. Because the assets over time, if you calculate what the cash flows are going to be on them, are going to be much better than on those bonds. Sure. You know? So it's something that people have to keep in mind that whenever valuing these assets, you always want to look at it in terms of what is the market implying that the returns will be on this asset if I hold it for the really long term. Mm -hmm. People always get like, what can I sell it for? Is what they're thinking. Sure. And if you get too much into that thinking, then you'll never buy anything that's trading at a big discount. You'll only buy things that um, have historically, you know, gone up a lot in price. So you're buying things that you think, okay, uh, because it once traded at a premium or something, I can buy it. And otherwise, you're just trying to f uh, you're just trying to flip it back at a higher price instead of looking at the underlying asset. Well, it's kind of like you um, like one of the things on our five things we look for uh, the boxes that need to be checked for us to invest in a company is we like to see growth of free cash flow greater than 10% per year, right? Right. Growth yeah. plus free cash flow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the free cash flow yields. So what we're looking for always. So you just know that the underlying business itself is growing. Absolutely. Yeah. And the only way to make money without doing that to, to, to outperform the market without doing what we just said we look for is to do what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Which is buying things at deep discounts. Just flipping it. Yeah. yeah, but uh, the court, you don't have to flip those things. I mean, you can buy those things and hold them for a very long time. Mm -hmm. If you're buying a discount of 50% or more, well, sure. yeah. and they're growing. Well, I mean... But I feel like a lot a lot of these companies, though, yeah. like people, they're not growing. Oh, Urbana is a common stock portfolio. What's it going to do, go down? <laughs> well, just, I mean, it might go down with the market, <laughs> yeah. but what's the long-term return in stocks? Like what, seven to eight percent, maybe? Okay, so potentially. It, so yeah. you're buying something that's fifty cents to the dollar mm -hmm. and probably growing five, six, seven percent a year yeah. long term. You know? Mm -hmm. I I mean it's not a it's not just a bunch of cash that you have. Yeah. Now there could be other things that are wrong with it. Um but you know, that's why you have to look at those two things. You have to look at how much is it compounding and how big is the discount. Mm -hmm. Almost anything that is generating some positive return each year and stuff is going to be worth it at really, really deep discounts. So like I said, a life insurer that I might not want to buy at half book value, but at one-tenth of book value, you would buy it. Because if you if the thing is returning 4% a year in terms of the return on equity, yeah. and you buy it at uh, one-tenth of book value, mm -hmm. right? So you're now buying it at this really deep discount. The return that you're getting in terms of the earnings, in terms of the dividends it could pay out to you, is really high right now by yeah. buying it this way, right? Uh -huh. But the issue is, if, what if I had to hold it forever? And that's a concern in the case of – so both Urbana and that company I was mentioning in Hong Kong are controlled companies where the insiders might not um, – might not do things for the shareholders that would create value over time. I don't know how likely that is in both cases. Has that been like a main concern of other investors that yeah. have run up the company? Yes. Yeah. But remember, Urbana bought back stock. Mm -hmm. And they get paid an asset management fee. So every time they bought back stock, they were lowering their own yeah, fee sure. by doing it. Yeah. Interesting. So, I, didn't, I didn't know that they get paid. Um, uh, I didn't other than assets under management? Yeah. yeah so yeah. when a closed-end fund, they're not closed-end fund technically anymore, but when a closed-end fund buys back its own stock, it's reducing the amount of assets that it has sure. by doing that. Mm -hmm. And as a result, if it's charging a percent of assets, it's now lowering their their potential their um, their uh, fee earnings, yeah. but it is increasing their ownership in it, which is another way to make money over mm -hmm. time. Sure. And the example of Hong Kong, you know, they own a large that Hong Kong company I was talking about. They own a large part of the um, company. So they do have a difference from an investor in that they can choose to cash out at any time. Mm -hmm. But we're investing in a bunch of things where that's true. Sure. Right? We're invested in something that, you know, the family owns 80% of or something. We figured they'll do a good job of running it. But it is true that we can, 
they may be fine with the stock selling at a big discount to what it's worth. Yeah. Because at any moment they could go to private equity and sell it for the <laughs> close same that value. Yeah, yeah. They can close it whenever they want. Yeah, sure. We can't, and it may never go up for us uh, as outside investors. In it. And that's something that people have a lot of concerns about. But you have to take those concerns, which are legitimate, mm-hmm. and turn them from words that you have concern, you know, and put them into numbers. And really realize what those numbers mean. Sure. So you're saying, okay, it should trade at a discount. Okay. But when you apply a 50% discount to something that's compounding yeah. at more than the very lowest single digits, yeah. that implies that you have an incredibly high degree of certainty that it will not do anything to close that value gap. And sometimes we're talking about decades, literally decades, yeah. like that you have to have a greater than 50% certainty that they won't do something in 20 or 30 years to close this gap. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It's hard to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I. How many people do you think thought Vulcan would ever liquidate? No one, really. I mean, <laughs> I mean, compared to what Vulcan's management did, compared to what the two we're talking yeah, about here, mm-hmm. gave every indication. I mean, for instance, that's the company that required the non-disclosure agreement. Sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it left open a factory which was losing money for. It what, had to be decades. What's gonna? What What's the liquidation price going to be? Then? Well, we'll see. But the people yeah. who owned it before the liquidation were announced will make good money. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you needed to sign an NDA. They're, they wouldn't speak to anybody. Yes. And I just told you about a company where they bought back stock even though that lowered their own yeah. fee. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are degrees of these sorts of concerns. Um, but, but the other thing is with these kinds of concerns that we're talking about, about um, handicapping it, I wrote once about some banks. I'm not going to mention what banks I wrote about. But I said, you know, what you have to understand is that on the flip side of this, so I think people are, apply often – uh, they're too accepting of a huge discount, uh-huh. right? But on the other hand, they don't apply a big enough discount to the possibility something could go to zero. That greatly changes the calculation sure. yeah. because even a small percentage chance that something will go to zero from where it is now actually has a big number over time. And I talked about the example of a bank where I was talking to someone and I said, you know, um, what's the chance that this bank will go to zero in any one year? And I said, let's assume it's 0.5%, right, mm-hmm. in any one year. That was, I was giving an example of a safe bank, right, that they thought were very safe. And they said, okay, yeah, that's true. And I said, this bank that you think is risky, but it's going to be safe for the next few years, how high do you think the risk is that it might go to zero? We talked about it and they said, okay, well, it might be a 5% risk per year. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the thing is that a 5% risk per year over 30 years. Yeah, you have a chance of. you. The likelihood yeah, is that it goes to zero. going to blow up. Yeah. Yes. Whereas the other one has like a 4 out of 5 chance it won't go yeah. to zero even after yeah. after 30 years. The difference is huge. Yeah. I mean, Buffett's talked about that with like the chance of a nuclear attack or something. People yeah. don't realize how big that risk is that they're taking. But the what happens with a stock like that? And because with that bank, for instance, everyone agrees there's a decent chance, a much higher chance. It could be 10 times the risk that a normal bank has of going to zero. Yeah. But they're sure this year won't be the year. Yeah. And they're probably right because you would get like a year or more of warning of starting to see things go bad. Yeah. You know, like, for instance, as long as you don't have a recession, the bank's probably not going to go to zero. It probably would take a recession, you know, something like that to happen. But there will in the next 30 years be a recession. And that risk could be really big that it goes to zero. And people aren't applying enough of a discount. Like in that case, they're applying barely any discount to the stock versus other banks. And in fact, it should be a really big discount. Yeah, you know? Uh-huh. Um, What's and, the bank called? <laughs> and um, Never tells. <laughs> I told you Urbana. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but Urbana, I was saying, is undervalued. Yeah. Not that, it, that you should be shorting it or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, they're not applying a big enough uh possibility that something could go to zero like the the possibility of a, the risk from something 
you know, you really have to adjust it in a big way for a downward number that um, to your you're needing a lower price, basically. So it has to be justified either by a lower price or in that case, like a higher growth rate. Sure. So if it always has a higher growth rate, then in theory, you could say, OK, well, even though I might not want to own it, if I was seriously concerned about that fact, they could go to zero. You know, you have to discount that in. And in a different example, I would say, you know, in the write-up that I did on Farmer Mac, the discount is too great, probably because of people saying, okay, well, this is this is a financial institution. It's risky. It's a, you know, it's a GSE, whatever sort yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's probably too big a discount in terms of the P being too low and everything because people have this memory of Freddie and Fannie, which are not publicly traded companies that are not in conservatorship. Yeah. Because that hangs over it probably. Mm-hmm. That is in people's minds. So they just it probably like automatically keeps it assume. Cheap. Yeah. Well, what else do people know about the company? I think the only thing they know is they're like, well, it's like Freddie and Fannie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it has to do with agriculture or something. Yeah. But I don't think anyone knows about it and doesn't know about Freddie and Fannie. Yeah, sure. And no one knows uh, uh, and what everyone knows about them because of the financial crisis is just what happened in the financial crisis. Yeah. But they don't know what happened in the 80s and the 90s with those stocks where they performed well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that thing hanging over it is important, but you have to put it into like numbers. Right. I mean, so you could say, okay, well, it should trade at uh, people now passing on the stock on Farmer Mac are saying, okay, well, a price to earnings of eight and a dividend yield of four percent is justified in their mind because it is a GSE or whatever. uh Okay, and they have a bias against GSEs, which might be justified. Yeah, but is it at a dividend yield of eight percent and a P of four? No. Well, then you have to find the point in between those two numbers and Uh try to do the math on figuring it out. Yeah, you have to apply something to say how big this should be, and it doesn't mean you have to calculate an exact value for something, but this is what we're talking about handicapping. You have to try to turn that into numbers with things and not just say, oh, well. It's trading too I, cheap. Yeah. Because if you do that, but I mean, if you don't apply those numbers, then you'll say, oh, I don't I don't like this guy running our banner or whatever. Yeah. People, someone will say, because I owned it and I noticed that the gap never closed. Uh-huh. Okay. But it, 50% discount might be okay. But what about a 75% discount, you know? Like, for instance, if you go from 50 to 75, that's, that doubles it, basically, yeah, uh-huh. is what we're talking about in terms yeah. of the math of what your returns will be and stuff. It's huge. So there, it may be that there's a justification for a pretty big discount, but there's not a justification for that big of a discount. I mean, I would say, as I just told you, there's not a justification for a 50% discount. Yeah. But there might be in terms of people's emotions. And I think there is in that case because it will drive them crazy holding it. <laughs> because it'll be like Vulcan in Paradise. Mm-hmm. It will do nothing. And then suddenly something will happen. Suddenly some things will go in process to close the gap. Yeah. And until that happens, it'll be just be driven crazy because you're like, I know it's worth a dollar and it's only yeah. trading for 50 cents. And that will happen day after day. Mm-hmm. But you have to do the math on it. And maybe if you own a portfolio of a, a diversified basket of things that are you know handicapped that way, it's easier. Like that's the Ben Graham approach. Yeah. So then you're not thinking too much about Urbana. You're just thinking, I own a lot of 50 cent dollars you know, and something will happen. You'll have Paradise or Vulcan or whatever will yeah. happen each year. Something will happen. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best way to do it. Whereas if you own a concentrate portfolio, maybe you obsess too much about those things that are mispriced in terms of the handicapping. But the handicapping type approach is something that definitely is like, it's the Ben Graham approach. Yeah. It's saying that net nets. The odds are that. Yeah. Over, well, yeah. net net is priced too low uh-huh. because it's a business that is profitable, right? It should be worth something, and it's worth it's being priced as if you should liquidate it. Whereas in reality, this is a company earning a positive return. It, it should be worth more than liquidation value. So you just buy everything that's priced at liquidation value or below, and assume that something will happen with it to make it go up. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can make your money faster if you were like an activist or something, yeah. and these companies weren't 
um, controlled, right? But like that's the example of Urbana. In that case, that company, if it was not immune to activism, would never trade at 50 cents on the dollar because activists would go into it immediately and close that gap. Yeah. The only reason that can exist is because people have no idea when they'll ever get paid. Got it. Yeah. But I mean, but like for instance, you're assuming you don't know. I mean, eventually they might sell out things mm-hmm. in any of these cases. I'm telling you that no one ever talked about anything until Paradise announced it and until Vulcan announced it. I heard nothing from people that it was about to happen. No, no. There was no information about it. And then, you know, just, it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then it closes. And so what's, what's Paradise going to liquidate at? Like how it'll much are do well. It'll, it's, it'll make money. It's my guess. It didn't get a very high price for the. How, what's the market cap on their company? It's like what fifteen. It's it's very small, isn't it? I don't know if it's twenty or thirty million right now. On Paradise, yeah, yeah, probably in that range of twenty or thirty million. I would guess. Um, before the, it announced it was going to liquidate, it would have been in the teens, probably in terms of millions, maybe. Let's see. My internet's messing up here. Nineteen million. Nineteen point six million. Nineteen point six million. Yeah. Do you know what the stock price is? Thirty-seven dollars. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Thirty-seven dollars. Yeah. So, um, so what do you see? What the return has been in the last year or whatever? Let's see here. It was at um, thirteen million dollar market cap, and now it's at nineteen million dollar. For some so reason, my charge is being really weird. Yeah. So only went up fifty percent or so. Yeah. There'll still be some time before that company's been around for a very long time, right? It's in a family-ran company. As far as I know, it's only lost it lost um, money one year in the last fifty years or so. Mm-hmm. But I, the company that's buying the fruit business is, I believe, only buying the fruit business, which means there's also a plastics business, and then they also own land in the area. Although it's sort of like just industrial level uh, land, it's not great. Although I did look at what the yeah. value of some of it is. Yeah. So the low in the past year was twenty six dollars a share, and now it's at thirty seven dollars. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, I haven't checked it right now, but I don't think that it's trading at some premium to the liquidation value, likely. So, um, yeah, but no one expected that to happen. Yeah. I mean, I talked about it at, uh, when I was writing things up for Guru Focus five or six years ago or seven years ago, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and you know, people had always talked about the possibility that it might liquidate. In that case, the company had said something about we might make an acquisition or we might sell the company. You know, all those things. In that case, I'm pretty sure it's because of the age of the people involved, um, which, you know. That's I mean, it makes oh, sense. Yeah. yeah, but that's also a reason why sometimes things you shouldn't assume nothing will liquidate in twenty years. Yeah, because, <laughs> because then, I mean, like in the Urbana case, he has a son, yeah. so maybe the son takes over and mm-hmm. and it won't liquidate in, even in forty years or something. But eventually, you know, when you start making calculations that okay, this thing won't, this gap won't close even after twenty years. Well, entire generations die out. Yeah. People, things happen with with families and with the owners and stuff that could you know create. Uh, you know, realizing that value. Liquidity events, yeah. Yeah. But so you do that calculation, and if you say, oh, I could only afford to hold this net net for five years before I'd be better off in a higher quality company, then don't do it. Don't buy that net net. Mm-hmm. But if you do the calculation and you say, well, I can afford to get stuck in this net net for 10 or more years, I'd say 10 years is a very good time to look at it. If you can afford to be stuck in a business for 10 years, yeah. and, you know, if in year 11 that gap closes and you'll have done better, in that company owning it for 11 years than you would have done in the S&P 500, then buy that because usually the gap will close faster than you might think. Yeah, then they'll only increase your return. Yeah, if you're making these kinds of assumptions. Yeah. Now, most people I see doing this are always looking for the quick 
uh, for the quick buck. Yeah. They're sure. always thinking that something will happen faster that will get me to realize this and I'll have this really amazing return. Yeah. Or instead you should be assuming what if I had to own this for a really, really long period of time. And the things that help out with that are a huge discount, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is the continual growth. The business is still growing. The underlying business. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's not like you're just missing. Even if you hold during the ten year, those 10 years, and like, for example, your example, right? It's paying a 1% dividend, 2% inflation mm-hmm. rate, and, you know, it's growing. Book value is growing by, what, 5%? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I bought Frost, and people said, oh, well, it's just a bet on higher interest rates, which is true when the Fed funds was at 0.25%. It was true... Um, in the sense that you might not outperform the market unless rates went up. Yeah. But you should get a return similar to the market if rates stayed the same. Yeah. Because you're paying about 13 times earnings for a bank um, at those interest rates. And then it was going to earn more if it didn't. The same exact calculation is what we did with Progressive. We basically said if you buy this and interest rates never go up, you're going to do as well in Progressive as the S&P 500. Yeah. But if you buy this and then rates go up, Progressive is going to far outperform the S&P 500. So that's, you know, the the, the heads I win, tails I don't lose that, that much, much or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a good way to think about it, though. I, I agree. Yeah, well, that's what the I assumption what I have saying. to do. I mean, yeah. what I was saying about Progressive and Frost in that case is the market is basically pricing it, though it really was at that time with banks and insurers too. Um, and this was only, whatever, three or four years ago. Um, the 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 market was really pricing in that rates will stay at close to zero forever. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't pricing that into other parts of the um, the financial system, but it was with actual bank stocks. Mm-hmm. It was saying they should trade at a P of you know fifteen or less on today's earnings, and we know that they'll earn more on higher interest rates. When really their P should have been especially high. Because you knew that at some point rates would go up, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know when they're abnormally low. It's like if you had an oil company or something, they should have a really high P in a year when oil is really cheap. Because at some point you know oil will be gonna, more yeah, expensive, yeah. and that's the way it should have been with those banks that way. And that's what, how you have to look at it that way. Well, it's kind of like with um, one of the companies we bought for the managed accounts mm-hmm. with the the new tax law. Yeah, so that's a good example with the tax law is that we basically knew. I mean, we knew that uh, the PE would be lower. In the future, because um, th- because it was being taxed at thirty some percent a year, and we knew that it would go down to mm-hmm. the to the twenties after that, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't reflecting in, in the current price. Yeah, and that's something with like overlooked stocks that happen a lot more often. Mm-hmm. But it can also happen with cyclical things. Yeah, you know. So if something's exceptionally high price, then you can see whether the market's pricing that in. I mean, I also did that with oil things that had to do with oil. I wrote up some companies that had to do with. Um, like I wrote up Carnival, for instance, mm-hmm. Carnival Cruise Lines. And I was saying that basically the market was saying like the the price was appropriate at the level it was, which was like a normal PE. But that was a normal PE on record high oil prices. The same thing actually happened with um, Haynes Brands. Mm. There was a year, this is even, people know about oil stuff, but what a lot of people may not know is that in the past decade or so, there had been a very high price for cotton at one point. Mm-hmm. And so companies that make like underwear and stuff obviously are using almost all cotton for everything. And as a result, they may earn a lot less in those years. Their PE should um, become in- incredibly uh, high in those years because their actual normal level will sure. be that it goes down a lot. Yeah. So what you want to look at is things like that. Like, for instance, the handicapping thing. If you look at that, you don't ever want to say, okay, there's record high – cotton prices, record high oil prices, record low interest rates, and the market is assuming that will continue. 
don't assume that record high, record low will continue. Sure. Always yeah. assume that won't continue. Yeah, sure. You know, so look for situations like that. Mm-hmm. And people will tell you, well, but this is appropriate PE or something, right? So, like, it's an appropriate PE. But if it, the input is cotton and cotton's really expensive, then it should trade a really high PE. Or if the you're putting out money, in the case of banks, then, you know, when money only yields 0.25% or whatever, yeah. then that's a lot. Uh, you know, you know that in the future, loans that they make are going to have higher yields than what they can lend them out for now. And so that's, you know, the same sort of handicapping thing in which you sort of assume, okay, well, the bank is normally priced if there's a 100% chance of interest rates staying at this level forever, which doesn't make sense, uh-huh. you know. It would make sense if, you know, the Fed funds rate was 3% or something because that would seem to be like a more sure. normal yeah, level. Yeah, but right? now when it's at point right. two five, and if it was at $65 yeah. oil, that would make sense. But if it's at, you know, a hundred and something dollar barrel oil. What's what you always talk about, like, um, you know, when people ask you, like, do you make macro yeah. um, calls? It's like only no. at the extreme point. Right. But I'm not, and I don't think of it as making the call no, it's just the as much as the reverse. Yeah. The, I mean, right. reversion to the normal. Yeah. Right? yeah. What, what I'm really, right. But what I'm really doing is I'm saying, okay, um, I, the investment, the only way this investment won't work out basically yeah. is if it never reverts. Those are the kind of situations you want to look for. So you want to look for situations where it's like, okay, you won't make money in this company if cotton prices stay at a record high forever. All right? Mm-hmm. You won't make money in this bank. You won't do better than average in this bank if interest rates never go up. Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. Those are the sorts of things that you want to look for because it's as if they're pricing in. Like, that's what we're talking about, these extreme cases with things like, you know, like Urbana and stuff. It, what the market's really saying in those cases is like, there's no chance it will liquidate. Yeah. And then you say, okay, we need to quantify what no means. Because, a f- you know, the 49% chance that it'll liquidate in the next 10 years is very different than 0% sure. chance it'll liquidate totally. in the next yeah. 10 years. Yeah. But I, a lot of times people think it's the same. I mean, they are so casual in the way they're looking. They're like, I don't think it'll liquidate in the next 10 years. Well, that's not the same as it's impossible it will yeah, liquidate totally. in the next 10 years. Those are very yeah. different values if you handicap it. Yeah. You know? That's a good way to put it. Yeah. That's good. That was a good show. <laughs> okay. That was good. We didn't know where Courtney. we were going to go. I know. <laughs> to Charlie. Yeah, I know. Good job up there. We got another one that they can't see, but maybe they can see that. I don't know. But anyways, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit that thumbs up button and subscribe, subscribe. Yeah. to the account. And if you're on the audio version of the podcast, feel free to leave us a rating and review, preferably five stars. Yes, preferably. <laughs> yeah, this is free content, and you know that you could give us five stars and then say all the negative things you want because <laughs> the algorithm only counts. That yeah, you just give us five, five stars. stars. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's so funny. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. Be sure to sign up for the Focus Compounding Gazette if you like free content, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Okay. So, how will we know the time for these things? I don't know how far, how long we've been talking. That was fifty minutes. Well, I see. I don't know that.